as you know, we've been walking through what most of us kind of have heard is the Ten Commandments, right? That's what we know, these, these ten words that help kind of ground us back into what life with God and life with others is meant to really be. And so to kind of help us redirect our thoughts and attention away from the good, the good beverages and good conversations and like our kids getting to go into the back and all that fun jazz, um, and to kind of set our minds and, and hearts attention onto God speaking to us, God giving us words that ground our life again with Him and with others. Deidre's going to come up and read from Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, uh, a passage that we read last week, but again, that helps us set the direction for what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor extortionists will inherit God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. Yes, that verse makes us want to do that, right? <laughs> right? It makes us want to scream. And again, as we talked about um, last week, like part of the reason we're reading these things is because at some level we've all felt kind of the weight of the Ten Commandments. We've felt the weight of finding ourselves on the left side of the butt. The left side of the, the but so are some of you, right? And we're going to continue to kind of walk out in, in hopefully in a very honest way, in a good way, what it means to be on the other side of it, right? To be ones who deal with the weight of what it looks like to be called to a certain way of life, to be, called to, to be told what good life is meant to be and feel like we don't live up to it. Uh, feel like that at times and at moments, uh, maybe even right now, we don't feel like we're on the side of life, good and eternal and forever, right? And so, so just remember that as we kind of come, kind of walk into what we're talking about today. Because the Ten Commandments, again, boy, I don't know what your history is with them, um, but for a lot of us, um, they almost just hold this negative connotation, right? This, these are these are commands for things not to do, things that like there's some authority figure has told us to do, and if we mess them up, we've messed up everything, kind of deal. And what we've talked about for the last two months is that's not true, but it's hard for us to hear those things and believe that, right? It's hard for us to believe, like especially against kind of the grain of maybe what we've known and grown up in, that there might be another way in which these words are spoken to us, and there might be another way in which God is actually speaking these words to us even now. But let me say this as we kind of get back into where we're at today into the eighth word. Poverty is a result of relationships that do not work. That's what Brian Fickert and Stephen uh, Corbett said in When Helping Hurts. Poverty is the result of relationships that don't work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom, peace, in all its meaning. According to one source, poverty refers to lack of, of adequate financial resources or just general resources that an individual or household or an entire community might lack, and so therefore not have the means to exist or acquire the basic necessities, not just to live, but for a life flourishing. Poverty is not simply the absence of the ability to live, it's the absence of the ability to flourish. But remember what we've said, that the ten words, 
The Decalogue, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, they're called the Decalogue, which just literally means ten words. Ten words are spoken so that we might know how to live free and not enslaved. They are words spoken for our flourishing and not our impoverishment. They are spoken so that we might live in shalom and peace in all its meanings and not without it. Essentially, these ten words reveal that relationship is everything. Relationship is everything. When our relationships to God and to others and to the earth are properly ordered, when they are just, when they are for life, they lead to harmony and enjoyment, to shalom, to wholeness, completeness, fullness. The ten words also assume that we're not so good at relationships. It assumes that relationships are everything. And then when they work, we get to live free from the things that would enslave us, entangle us, keep us from life whole. But they also assume, in their very language, that we're not very good at relationships. That indeed, we need this simple thing spelled out in a way that we can easily recall if we want to find ourselves living differently than our common experience. If we want to find ourselves living rich in relationships at work. And so, at some level, like, to enter into and hear the ten words might feel like an affront because it kind of is, right? Not only do they speak the reality of the life that we want, a life of harmony at peace when things work together well and we get the fullness and abundance of it, they also, in the same way, speak to us and say that, hey, you're not that great at it. Your tendency is not towards caring for life and protecting life, it's taking life. Your tendency is not towards honoring your tendency is towards rebelling. It's not towards making God, letting God be who he's meant to be, who he is, the beginning and the end. It's to create God in your own image, to do things your own way, right? That's our, those are our tendencies. In some way, they expose our tendencies, and that's why, as we talked about last week, we get really uncomfortable the further down we go into the ten words. But because these ten words reveal not just the picture of life as it could be, but also tell and speak of life as it is, the Ten Commandments are not so much a set of obligations as a revelation of the laws that govern reality. They reveal reality's limitations and potential. The Ten Words are not so much a set of rules, but rather a revelation of the laws that govern our reality. They reveal its limitations and potential. If we want to live free and full, we don't fight the law of gravity like we talked about last week. Instead, we learn to flourish within it, which means we learn to fly, right? I mean, we talked about, again, the law is feeling like the law of gravity, that once we kind of realize that we live within it, yes, it has its negatives, right? You can't just go and do whatever you want. You can't just jump off everything and not hurt yourself, right? As a kid, we discovered that. But there is some amazing things that we begin to do as we understand how to flourish within the limitations. We can fly. We can fly around the world, right? Like, the law does not just restrict, it actually expands. While the natural law of the ten words may restrict our actions, do this and don't do that is how we say them, right? They also expand our responsibility and co-creativity in the relationships that make life. They not only restrict... They help us see the limitations, but they also empower us to be responsible, to be creative, to use everything that we have within us to bring about good. We've seen this double nature of the ten words throughout our series, haven't we? 
in the fundamental relationships of our existence, our relationship with God, the number one and number four, we have come to see that we are bound by His starting, His primacy in creation and rescue and reorientation. And we're bound within His rhythmic continuation, joining Him in delight and labor for good. Between these two laws, we are bound, and absolutely so. We can't escape it. Yet, as the writer of Ecclesiastes so pointedly concludes, these bonds are meant to suppress, but to free. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of humanity to be occupied with. This is what we've been made to get through the day, to get us through the day. It keeps us busy. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in humanity's heart. Yet so that they cannot find out the work God does from beginning into the end. He's put eternity in our heart, but we can't know everything. We don't know all the details. We can't figure it all out. God's not a puzzle to figure out. Our future's not a puzzle to figure out. What God has intended for us is not some sort of lock and code to figure out, but it's a relationship to be entered into. I perceive that there is nothing better than for them but to be joyful and do good as long as they live, taking pleasure in all their labor. That is God's gift. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that the people may fear before them. They might be in awe and wonder before Him. What has been already is, and what is to be already has been, and God requires an account, not for how well you kept the laws, but for what has been pursued. What kind of life in these bounds have you pursued? In the boundaries of what is and has been and will be, in the bounds of God's creation, in the bounds of God's continued good design and destiny for creation and uh, restoration, how have you lived? What have you pursued? What's the life that you pursued? Be joyful and do good. Take pleasure in the work you're made for, in the fear of the Lord, in the awe and wonder of life bound in God's all-encompassing grace and knowledge. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes encourages us over and over again. But in the middle of that pursuit, where we work out the tension in our freeing limits, we're restricted to serve no microscopic images of life good, no matter how intricately or beautifully crafted they might be. No matter how well they're packaged and sold to us, no matter how amazing we are at trying to bring them to life. But rather, we're to discover, like all those in our faith heritage, that His ways are far beyond ours. And He goes abundantly beyond what we can ask or even imagine. Likewise, we're restricted to not twisting, making false I am, but discovering, like all those in our faith heritage, the awe and wonder and empowerment that comes from His intimate, intricate, intentional, and immutable action and affection towards us. His forming us with affectionate purpose from the secret places of eternity. We see the same restriction leading to expanding within our relationships with others in the final six words. The exhortation in the fifth word, to honor those we didn't choose, and in the tenth word, to be content in what is given, keeps us bound to our lot which is the way the author of Ecclesiastes says, is our place, our God-gifted place to experience joy. Not somewhere else, not in someone else's shoes, not in some other story, but in yours, in the lot that we've been given. But bound here, where we are, with who we are, given to, and what is given to us, we, the ten words, rightly 
realign the power of living long in the land that the Lord has given us, as the fifth word says, not in what others do to us or have that we don't have, but rather how we relate to and how we use what is already ours. The power is taken from those who birthed us and from all the people that have something that we don't. No longer is our life contingent upon them. Our life now, in the boundaries of God's good design, His beginning, His continuing, is up to how we respond. Not fully. That isn't, it's not putting all the weight on you that if you don't respond well to this, you won't experience. But think about the empowerment that comes with what has been done to you and what you don't have doesn't limit you to experiencing a life full of joy and goodness and peace. Like, what if that was true? If what was done to you, like what you've been given, what you were given into, your situations and circumstances that you were born into, and what has been given to you, your abilities and skills, what you've been able to through your own efforts develop and, and bring and make and all those kind of things, what if within that it was all that you needed to live full and whole and at peace? How freeing would that be from anxieties and fears and worries? From that being stolen or taken? From that being having to be fought for or manipulated? You're responsible and competent for making life good, says the Ten Commandments, because you're bound in God's beginning and His continuing. Think again about how profound such a revelation would be to us if we believed it, but even more so to people who had only known slavery literally. I mean, remember who the ten words are spoken to, right? It's people who, at least for the last 400 years, and the last few hundred of those 400 years, have only known oppression, not freedom, who have always been under the bounds of others and what they've done to them, what they limited them to. There was no such thing as freedom. So to not only hear that life is possible and to live free and whole would be such a foreign idea that you almost couldn't hear it positively, right? That would just be a, a pipe dream. You'd almost have to hear it like the ten words. As warnings not to do the things that you have actually experienced yourself for the last 200 years. Right? Because that's all you knew. Still, the beauty of the revelation does not immediately outshine the difficulty of its daily manifestations. As in our relationship with God, so in our relationship with others, the middle is messy. We are prohibited then from taking life. And so we're freed from the hatred that would cost us our lives. From being bitter, being against others that cost us in joy, joy in life. And rather empowered to be thoroughly thoughtful about how to protect and care for life. As we looked at the Levitical regulations a few weeks ago that Chaz led us through. Likewise, we're prohibited from breaking covenant, as we saw last week. And so we're freed from the entanglements that would destroy our lives. We're freed from getting wrapped up and sucked in and pulled apart from the things that actually make life good and bound to things that actually take life from us. And we're empowered then to be continuously and creatively nourishing of the relationships through which we make life good. To be people who live in fidelity. And we will see the same contrasting to a large feature in the eighth word today. Thou shalt not steal. Seems pretty straightforward enough, though, right? Leave it to Jeremy to complicate things. The Hebrew word in thou shalt not steal 
means literally to carry away secretly to get by stealth. It is a primitive root, uh, root of thieve, literally or figuratively, to thieve, by implication to deceive. While like murder and adultery, stealing is a universally acknowledged wrong, the word used here allows us to expand the prohibition from not only unlawfully appropriating someone else's property. I mean, at you know, three years old, we knew it wasn't right for us to take stuff from our mom's purse. We knew it wasn't right for us to take things from the grocery store, right? Like, really early in life, we realized taking other people's things are not okay. Like, like even, if it, even if we keep doing it for a long time, like, we, we know that it's not right. So we try to get sneaky about it, right? That's why even, even as a child, when you took something that wasn't yours and you weren't supposed to have, did you run around the house like, woohoo, look what I got? No, you just intuitively put it in your pocket and walked, walked on, went to the corner, got in the closet, did something, whatever, like, right? Like, like, like in our very like, nature, we know that taking what is not ours is not right. We hide from it, and we hide it when we do it. But the word that's used doesn't just say what we all know to be true. It actually says, not only do not take what's not yours, but do no action to take advantage of another. The word isn't just don't take from someone else, but don't take advantage of someone else. Martin Luther contended that we break the eighth word whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss for him or her. We take from our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in a loss for him or her. When we act in a manner to take advantage of our neighbors, and listen, neighbors includes people you live with, like it could be your spouse, your parents, your friends, your roommates. It could be people you live near, like actual neighbors, right? People that you are in life with around you. People that are in your family or a part of your community. But neighbor also applies to employers, people who you work for and work with, as well as customers, people you do business with, as we'll see. Like people who you exchange things with and for, whether they employ you or you sell to them or you buy from them or whatever. Also means greater society, the community that we're a part of, like our city. And also by implication, even what it means to be a part of the human race on earth. So acting in a manner to take advantage of our neighbors is actually a reason God gives, attests to, amid a great time of prosperity in Israel's history, that they would soon find themselves living enslaved once again. So here they are in the book of Amos, at the height of their prosperity, about to walk back into what they just left. And here's the reason why that's about to happen to them. This is what God says in Amos chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain. When can we get back to work, is what it's saying. Like, when are the festivals over? When are the, the, the celebrations over? When is the year of Jubilee over, which we'll talk about in a second? When are these times set aside to not do business, not to make money, but just to celebrate, to delight in what is good, community, what's been provided for us by God, like all those kind of things. When is that going to be over and we can get back to what life's really about? Selling what we got, making some money. Right? But not just is that like, hey, like, listen, maybe they just need to survive. 
that's part of life, right? We all have times where we're like, we need to get back to work because we need, we need a way to live, right? When are we going to be able to sell grain again? But listen to what it says. Not only do they say, when will the new moon be over, we may sell again, but, and, when is the Sabbath coming? That we may offer wheat for sale. That we may make the epas, epa, sorry, small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. In other words, like the heart of their question comes out in their next statement. So when can we start taking advantage of people's rhythmic worship of God, the Sabbath, where they have to go and buy things to sacrifice and to sell, where they haven't worked, and so we need to sell them things because they're going to have to take a whole day off and not work, and they're going to need stuff to be able to do that. And not only can we sell that and make money off of them, which, by the way, is against the Levitical laws, but we're going to do it in a way that makes what we give them, the epa, small. Like, we're going to take this, this, this bundle of wheat, and instead of it being, just for numbers sake, instead of it being a pound, we're going to make it 12 ounces. Right? So if 16-ounce pound, we're going to make it a 12, 12 ounces for them. And we're going to take the shekel, which is this little thing, and make it great. We're going to make a lot of money off of this. And we're going to do it in a way that takes advantage and deals deceitfully with our neighbors because not only are we going to do it in a way that, that we give them less for what they're buying, but we're also going to do it when we tip the scales in our favor, when the scales are off balance. And in so doing, like, we'll actually make money off the poor. We'll buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Like, all, like the way we're going to go about doing our business, the way we're going to go about getting our resources, what we were after is going to be at the advantage of others. We're going to sell even the, the part of the, the wheat, the chaff of the wheat that's no good. Because this was their heart and their practice, the Lord continues. The Lord was sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land on this account, the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. They're going to mourn they dwell in it because it's horrible, right? Like, right? That's a big part of it. They're already mournful. But listen to what the Lord says. And all of it rise will rise like the Nile and be tossed about to sink again like the Nile of where? Of Egypt. The place where they were. The place where they were enslaved. Once again... It's going to feel like they've created a whole environment that feels like they've gone back to where they were before they were released. They're actually going to live, in, even though they're in the promised land, they're making the promised land a land of oppression. And everybody's going to feel like it. And then after this moment, God actually comes back in, and they now get to go be exiled and enslaved physically again, not, no, no longer metaphorically and spiritually. They're back, they're back taken off and removed from the land. And so, all because they didn't consider their neighbors worthy of ones to treat with respect and with honor, to walk with integrity in, to, do, to not steal from. <laughs> they saw their neighbors as ones to take advantage of. They saw their people as ones to take advantage of. But it's the consideration of neighbor, seeing neighbor not in pity but compassion as a person of dignity and ability that informed the Levitical laws for gleaning, which we're all familiar with. If you know anything about farming, um, um, and I only know a little bit because my father-in-law is a farmer, the way a field is usually squared off, it's usually squared off, right? There's a fence that marks the field. 
um, and there's a track that goes around the field, but you don't, you don't plow the field in just in straight lines all the way. There's actually kind of like a, a circular way in which you, you plow a field. It's all straight lines, but it's not like you go directly to the fence line all the way. There's always little corners of the field that are, that are kind of left un, untouched. And so sometimes they might go back and, like, and, like, and, and lay some like weed or corn or whatever it is in the little corner parts, but they're always kind of at a different like, like angle than the circular middle. And part of that's because they have pivots that water and all that kind of stuff, but it's also just the, the easier way to, to actually sow, um, sow the seed. And so in these, in, um, that way of farming is not actually just unique to modern machinery. That's actually the way like, fields have been sown for a long time. Like, they're, they're not perfectly square. They're, mu- they're meant to be generally kind of rounded off a little bit. And while, yes, you could try to take advantage of getting every inch of the field sowed, in reality, like you know as a farmer that you're going to lose some of the edge of the crop. Like there's going to be other things that if you, that if you don't have that space on the edge, then, like, then it's not going to be as easy to actually get the, the main crop out of the middle. But in, 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 the, in the early centuries, right, as these people are coming out of slavery and learning agriculture and all this kind of stuff, like, it's our natural tendency to take what we have and try to get the most out of it, right? Like, that's our survival instinct. That's what we do as humans. Like, whatever we have, we want to get the most out of it. And so when, when God is thinking about, okay, so how do I help them not just take advantage of the land and not just take advantage of each other, but, like, but actually, like, consider one another, he gives them laws for gleaning, laws for what is going to be allowed to, in a sense, to help them encourage neighborly consideration. And so in Leviticus 19, it says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. You don't go all the way into the corners. Don't go all the way from fence line to fence line. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Neither shall you go in after the harvest. Especially, you know, this is, this is early modern times, right? So everything's by hand. Like, it's not the most efficient way to get stuff. Like, so, like, there's always a little bit of extra stuff left. He says, don't take the extra stuff. Get your, get your, your hand full. Get your pile full. Get, get what you can. But don't go through nitpicking and getting every little piece of, of, of grain that falls to the, to the ground. Leave the gleanings around. In fact, you should also do this for not just for your, for your wheat, but also for, your, uh, for your, your, your grapes. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Rather, God says, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You should leave them for others to come glean them, to come take of them, to come... Again, this isn't, this isn't a a charitable thing in the sense of like, um, hey, creating a kind of a welfare system kind of, kind of mentality. This is, hey, listen, there will be times when those around you will experience difficulty. They will have poor with you. You'll have people who are, who are sojourners who are not a part of you who are coming in and out or maybe moved here who don't have land themselves yet. And so in order to give them dignity, in order to show them that they're full of dignity, let them work. Let them work the edges and the things that are left. Give them an opportunity to help themselves by you not being greedy and taking all that you can. Like, like it doesn't mean like they just get to they they can just come in whenever they want and take whatever they want whenever they want. They're gleaning men at times of harvest. There would be certain sections of the field that at the end of the harvest were left for the poor and for the sojourner to come in and to harvest themselves. It means when the, when the harvesting was over, when there were grapes on the ground and there were wheat on the ground, the gleanings on the ground, 
but they were allowed to come in afterwards and come and take what was left to make you their best use of, to, to, to eat or to sell or to do whatever they wanted with, right? And in this way, like God is helping us recognize that while we can take everything that we want from what we have, like our hearts and our life and, our, and our, the goodness of the community that we're trying to create will require us to not take everything we can, to not take advantage of the fact that we have land and others don't, that we have lots of resources and others don't. Again, this is not, a, it's not a, like a socialism. It's not everybody gets the same amount. It's actually a dignifying of the people, right? Like it's, it's saying that, hey, listen, like if we all actually like respected one another in a healthy way, and didn't take everything that was ours to take, but rather allowed and invited others to come work what is ours so that they could work themselves, society might be in a better place. The consideration of neighbor extends all the way from the potential of production to the establishment and use of private property, which would have been revolutionary. We are all accustomed to having private property. Again, think about the people who got talking to. They've literally never owned anything. What they left Egypt with was Egyptians' stuff. Remember? Remember the story? They were given things by the Egyptians because they didn't have anything of their own. And what they had of their own was very basic and very rustic, right? And so in Leviticus 25, it says, And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor... It assumes that, again, that you're interacting with one another, doing business with one another. You should not wrong one another. You should just be just in your business dealings. You shall pay your neighbor according to the year of Jubilee. This year of Jubilee is a, is a cyclical cycle in the Jewish calendar in which debts are forgiven, which property rights are forgiven, like taking of things were forgiven. People were, there was a chance every Jubilee to start over again, which is pretty exciting, Right? And so that would be pretty great for, for all of us. But you shall pay your neighbor according to the years of Jubilee. That is, he shall sell to you according to the number of years of the crops. So how far in between the Jubilees you are. So you're going to sell the number of crops you have. So if you're 15 years away from Jubilee, then you're selling 15 years of crops. That's the price of your, of your land. You can't go above it. You could go less if you want, but you can't go beyond what you're actually selling. Because at some point, the land's going to come back to them. If the years are many, you'll increase the price. If the years are few, you should reduce price. Pretty simple, right? You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. You shall be in awe and respect, for I am the Lord your God. Again, like I, I am, because you're bound within my life. Respect one another. Deal honestly with one another. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, the law goes on to say. For the land is mine. In all truth, what we have isn't really ours. Remember, if we're bound in God's life, it's all His. And we're stewards of it. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. You're stewards of this, what I've given you with me. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. In all the, in all the country that you possess, you shouldn't just hold debt over people. In all the country that you own, you should allow people to be free, to be able to, 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 at a time and in a way, become free of the things that bind them. For instance, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you should support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, which what does a stranger and a sojourner get to do? 
They get to glean on the they get to gleanings. They get to find a way to contribute within the limitations, not be ones who are just at the handout of others necessarily, but actually ones who are dignified and who have a chance at some point because of the year of Jubilee to be reestablished again. Take no interest from him or profit from him, but rather, as Ecclesiastes said, fear your God, be in awe and wonder of God. Listen, gleaning limits and the right for and self-restrictions of private property, again, was revolutionary for a world dominated by survival, by those possessing power, taking all that they were able to take, those who maybe for the first time were getting things and wanting to get the most out of everything that they had. But it's these things taken together, why John Calvin would later argue that it follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those also who seek gain from the loss of others, who take advantage of the poor or the needy, who would accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and listen to this, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. Thou shalt not still has a broader context than just don't take the candy from the candy store. Whether through ethical business practices, not unlawful like ways of doing business, not, um, not ways of taking advantage of people at their most vulnerable moments of need, but showing dignity towards them, or through diligent labor, or self-respecting, respectful limitations, or generous living. The eighth word is not only a prohibition from taking from and taking advantage of others, it is a directive to steward with soul to steward for our souls and for the souls of others. Listen, the eighth word suggests that the right to private ownership, whether property, possession, or even your own person, is essential for our individual and collective flourishing. After all, you can't steal something from another unless it belongs to them, right? Private property, possessions, personal rights, again, would have been evolutionarily novel at the time. And I think... I can say this without getting too lost in the weeds, but it's in the importance of this word to establishing a flourishing life is profound. As one theologian argues, societies that have a deep and unyielding respect for the sanctity of private property have traditionally fostered institutions that we associate with a vibrant social and cultural life. For example, intact families, savings and deferred gratification, cooperative social norms, and high standards of morality. Like, that actually, not stealing from one another is really important for our entire existence in society to exist in a flourishing way. But perhaps at the foundation of this observation is the relationship between private property rights and capital creation, which, who thought we were going to talk about that? When people are empowered to use what is given to them, their wit, their ability, their history, or anything else in their bound existence, their will, their guts, like what they've gone through, what they're able to do. When they are empowered with personal responsibility and personal incentive, people are able to create value, not just for themselves, but for the entire community. Again, every farmer's land was able to create value, not just for himself, but for the entire community. Right? 
Everyone who, even if they didn't have land, were poor and needy, were able to contribute, to use what was given to them, just like Ruth did, by the way. Y'all remember the story of Ruth? Everybody remember that? How did she survive? How did she thrive? How did she come from being a sojourner in a land that she knew only one person and was lost in, but was committed to this one person and moved into? How did she not only make it through, but come and be raised up into the lineage of Jesus? She gleaned from land because it was gleanings. She went in and worked, and she was redeemed by a kinsman redeemer, one who came and said, I will redeem the debt to the family. because Why? Because the society allowed the redemption of the land. Right? Jesus' lineage was dependent upon a people who lived this way. In short, when we, people are, again, again, empowered to use what is given to them, empowered with personal responsibility and incentive, they create value for themselves for their community, they can create an economy. Pastor Tom Nelson points out that our English word economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which connotes the idea of household management or family stewardship. Economics just means family stewardship. Economics, come to find out, is a relational term. Just as in the scripture structure of the ten words, family stewardship, family and stewardship, takes center stage in most of our lives. Family, the people that we connect our bonds to are most, and stewardship, the economics of our daily existence, how we make a living, how we, how we survive, how we thrive, those two things take center stage in all of our lives. Whether towards flourishing or poverty, material or spiritual. Again, look at the structure. Like what kind of points out in the middle, the, the seventh and the eighth words. Poverty argues, Pastor Nelson, is a relational deficit. Poverty is lacking relationships that bring flourishing. And none of us are fully flourishing as God designed us to flourish, right? To some extent, we all confess that. We all believe that. We all want more than what we have in flourishing in life. Because in some ways, all of us, again, just like we read in 1 Corinthians, are in some ways impoverished because of our relationships are impoverished in some way or another. Whether it's because of, of lack of fidelity in our most bound relationships, our fidelity or the fidelity of others, or it's poor stewardship of what we've been given and what's ours, whether our own poor stewardship or the poor stewardship of others. Disloyalty and exploitation always erode relationships, especially the bedrock relationships of economics, of family and stewardship. It can and has and is argued that there is a seamless interdependent relationship between family life the workplace, and the broader economics of our existence. In a real sense, as the family unit flourishes, as our bonds to one another deepen, our fidelity grows and matures, is nurtured and cultivated, like we talked about last week, the broader economy, the way of we exist in our stewarding of who we are, what we have, flourishes as well. This means, once again, there is a great opportunity and potential for good in our daily relationships and responsibilities. There's a great potential in them, in our fidelity, in our stewardship, even if those are also the places we experience and participate in the oppression of life most acutely, right? Because don't we feel, we feel the sting of adultery and of, being, of things being stolen from us, right? We feel the sting of disloyalty and exploitation. 
but it's also in the same bonds of relationship, in those same places of doing the things that God's made us to do and doing them well, and with a generosity of heart, that we actually can see the flourish, the flourish and the manifestation of something good. That's what the ten words are saying and conveying to us. Again, we began the sermon with Deidre reading the same text we read last week. In Paul's letter to his faith family of Corinth, he reminds his friends that there is a way of living that is outside the kingdom, that is not the experience of life free and whole, bound in love, but enslaved to our whims, enslaved to whims, our own and others. A way of living that, apart from Jesus' fidelity and Jesus' stewardship, and the Spirit's continued indwelling, would remain normal and less. But notice, again, the two areas on the list, real quickly. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But nobody deceive, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals. This kind of, this physical, sexual, relational group. Then there's another group. Thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, extortionists, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, we'll always come back to the but. It's a beautiful, beautiful part. According to, again, what we talked about last week, the rule of categories, the first five in the list relate to the seventh word, whether physically or spiritually. They're about being disloyal, not nurturing what is actually true in our deepest, most relational bonds, bonds to to others, to ourselves, to God. The, The second five relate to the eighth word. In Paul's estimation, infidelity in all its forms and exploitive stewardship in all its forms work hand-in-hand against life, whole and holy. We cannot be faithful in our relationships and a poor steward, nor can we be a poor steward and faithful in our relationships. And so were some of you, Paul says, and I'd argue and testify and confess. So were all of us. So was me. So am I. But by the grace of God. Amber, I'm going to skip the next couple slides just for time's sake. So then, if being ones who are good family stewards, faithful stewards is what we're after, if what, what living well looks like being ones who steward with our soul, how do we do that? What does stewarding with our soul look like? What then might stewarding with soul entail? Real simply, stewarding with soul means doing good work well and generously. Thou shalt not steal means do good work well and generously. Listen, I won't belabor the point because we spent months leading into the summer on this topic, right? So I think it's helpful and important to point out how in the same letter, describing how to live with fidelity to the seventh word, in the letter to Ephesians, Paul describes how we're also to keep the eighth word. He says it in one verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing good work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How do we steward with the soul? How do we steward with all of our being for the sake of others' beings? We stop thieving first, right? We admit that we're thieves, that we're all taking advantage of somebody, right? Maybe we're not taking directly from someone, but we're taking advantage of someone. And we do that in part by just doing good work. 
by jumping into the work that is good and makes things good, the good works that we're made for. We stop living in a way that takes from others and actually takes responsibility. And we do it ourselves, again, with our own hands, not passing on the responsibility to others, not taking advantage of others so that we don't have to work or do good work, not passing the buck to other people, but ourselves getting in and getting our hands dirty and being responsible for what God's given us, for the life God's given us. And lastly, we do all this not, as Calvin contended, self-absorbed in our efforts, but with a generous openness to others, so that we might have something to share with anyone in need, including those we are responsible for. That we impart compassion and dignity to those like us, like us, in need of others' good stewardship. I don't know if you remember this, but during our last series we talked about, Luther said, God doesn't need your good work. Your Your neighbors do. God doesn't need your good work. Your neighbors do. Like, if we want to actually be a part of something more than just internally feeling good about ourselves in relationship to with others and the Lord, then we actually have to get to participate in creating value and good for others. And in doing so, then, we get to participate in creating a good, whole, shalom economy for all that might flourish. That's what the eighth word expands our vision to, empowers us to to pursue and to fly after. It's not simply don't take and don't take advantage, but strive after the creation of something that flourishes for all. Do the simple things of doing good work well with a generous heart. So, for just a couple minutes, before we we kind of close our time, I want to give us just a second to think about these things. I know we, I, I kind of went a little long. I joked with Randy that this was a long sermon, and it was, because it wasn't a joke. Um, <laughs> but I do think it would be amiss of us if we just kind of walked away with hearing these things that didn't have a chance to reflect on them, right? So in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And then up on the screen, there's just going to be a couple questions. And we're just take about three minutes of quiet to ask the Spirit to examine our hearts. We're not self-examination. This isn't you trying to figure things out. It's you asking the Lord who knows you already, who loves you in all of your brokenness and deficiencies, who longs for your wholeness more than you do, to help you see your heart in the relationships of employment and responsibilities, of property possessions, of community society, the economics of your life. And ask the Spirit to show you in what ways you're stewarding with your soul. Because I know you, and I know you are. But like me, it's not every, you're not doing it well in every area, right? So don't just ask to know what's going well, which is good. You should. But also ask, and I think this is a helpful question, in what ways am I taking rather than taking responsibility? And maybe what do I need to give up? to give up thieving. So I'm going to pray for us. These questions will stay up on the screen. We'll have about three minutes of quiet before we take communion together. Father, I thank you that 
what you envision for us in life is more than just more than just the, the thing that we know not to do. But Lord, you rather envision us being a part of what seems almost beyond our imagination, Lord. A way of living with others in life that actually brings flourishing for all. That doesn't, isn't some sort of naive ideal, but takes into account all the ups and downs and pitfalls of life. And in that, experiences tremendous grace and generosity, compassion and dignity. And not only do you show us that, but you long for us to be ones who participate in fostering, creating, and cultivating that in the very places that we are now, amongst the very people who are here and who are not here, who we live with, who we work with, in a time and place in history, Father, Lord, when our our efforts can actually go such a long, tremendous way. So encourage our hearts. Reveal to us where we might be off in our ways and lead us, Holy Spirit, in your way, ancient and everlasting. We thank you for the life of Jesus who makes this possible. In his name we pray. Amen.